you not believe my son just slipped? Excuse me? Fucking Babylon. I will leave you. You don't think I want to spend some time with my family after being gone all week? People think that I am unhinged? You touch me like that again and I will fucking leave you. Fucking leave you. Maybe you can give one hand to Warren so he can shove it too. Oh, and we're off. The Coffee Black Podcast. Welcome to the Coffee Clash Crew Big Little Lies episode review. I'm Jason Pistorino. I'm Christina Lomangino. And today we uncover the truth of episode one What Have They Done? It was really nice watching this again. I forgot how long it's been. 2017 is when season one came out. But also, we had a whole entire Sunday of binge-watching season one because HBO was doing a marathon. Yeah, so much happened, even though there were only seven episodes in season one. So we definitely want to start off talking about that. Let's give you a breakdown of how the CKC podcast coverage is going to go. Here, we're going to brush you up a little bit on season one, the important things that happened, as well as discuss episode one. Moving forward, these are going to be bi-weekly podcasts. So every two episodes, we will do a coverage. That means there will not be one next week for episode two. After episode three, we will cover both of those. But what we will be doing every week, after each episode, on our Twitter, at CKC Podcast, we will be putting up the poll, who is your most valuable character for that episode. So don't miss those. As we said, first, we're just going to review season one. I wish we had been able to podcast on this at the time. I had read the novel This Is Based On by Leanne Moriarty. It had been quite a while. She's got a new book coming out, too. Yeah, she's had a few. She's actually a really amazing author, and she's been involved in the writing process for both season one and season two. But because some time had passed, it was still exciting for me. I knew the main point of where they were getting to, but not how it was going to be displayed. And we'll discuss some of the visual splendor from director Jean-Marc Vallée, who did season one. We loved him from Sharp Objects as well. I went back and listened to the book so I would be caught up again. It is a pretty great adaptation, especially, as we said, with the condensed format of only seven episodes. And many people wondered after season one, why have a season two? Surely we closed this out. We told the entire story of the material, did it in a really great way. We addressed the big mystery at the heart of it. Yeah, but don't forget, everyone, including us, was like, I hope they do another season. This was amazing. We did say that, yet I had no idea where they would go with it. How do you continue this? The thing is, I didn't really have a lot of doubt because the characters are written so amazing. There's so much happening between them. And the cast is phenomenal. Every single person here. Plus, we will obviously discuss we have the addition of Meryl Streep for season two. Just a joy. I guess there was some backlash because they won a multitude of awards for miniseries, and now it's no longer a miniseries. They did. They received 16 Emmy nominations with eight wins, including Outstanding Limited Series. The director, Jean-Marc Vallée, as well as Nicole Kidman, Alexander Skarsgård, and Laura Dern all won awards in their individual categories. All that is to say, it received a lot of critical acclaim, and the people loved it as well. So now we have season two, which is the aftermath of what has happened once we find out who the culprit is. Very similar to, and I've seen blogs say this as well, very similar to Broadchurch. What happens to the people in that town, to the people closest to the drama afterwards? Yeah, because it doesn't just end. There's so much complexity here. Mm -hmm. Somebody died. This ripples out. It affects all of them. They've lied to the police. Obviously, that's going to be a huge factor in season two. It's eating away at them. This very tenuous 
relationship that they all built. Yes, there are deep emotional bonds of friendship happening between Madeline, Celeste, and Jean. But by the end of the season, Renata has been brought into the fold. Bonnie is a little more part of their group. We mm-hmm. don't get to see that develop before they are faced with this imminent crisis. Yeah. So what happens now with all of them that that's occurred, it's already bubbling to the surface in episode one. Oh, yeah. They do a tremendous job in 40 minutes, 45 minutes of getting so much information to you, but at the same time, not feeling like they're shoving it down your throat. That has been one of the hallmarks of Big Little Lies in season one as well. I love the name, the title of it, because it could be presented. You could think of it so many different ways. We have Big Lies. Here's one big one, obvious one. The fact that they killed Perry. But what about all the little lies? The lies they told to themselves. Season one, Jane was living a lie to herself. She was actually literally and figuratively running from them to the multitude of lies, Madeline, Celeste. Yeah, we're going to review all of those when we talk about season one, break it down by character, because I feel like that's how you have to analyze this show. Yeah. But this season, we have Celeste still lying to herself, but in a different way. Bonnie, the only one not capable of lying to herself, and you can see how that's destroying her. And a few more characters that I can't wait to break down. And I have big questions. (laughs) I have big little questions. Yes. So let's backtrack to season one, where at a public school in Monterey, California, a murder suddenly occurs on trivia night, but neither the victim nor the murderer is revealed. They rewind to the first day of school, where the families of five first graders are introduced. Renata and her daughter, Amabella, Madeline and her daughters, Chloe and Abigail, Celeste and her twin boys, and Jane and Ziggy. I keep forgetting it's trivia night because in my head it's karaoke night. They didn't really go into that in the show. Maybe that makes it confusing. It I was, remember one trivia being asked, but the, it was kind of in the background. In the books, it was supposed to culminate with this big trivia event. That was the point of it all as a fundraising charity event, but as this way to get people intrigued, they were also supposed to come dressed up as Elvis or Audrey. A series of issues went down that I don't remember if we really saw in the TV, starting off with the people who were catering the event were late, so there was no food. No, that wasn't in the show. All they had was drinks, and somebody had made this punch, which they had messed up with and put way too much alcohol in. So while people are waiting for the food, they're drinking, getting more and more drunk, They start to get rowdy. Fights are breaking out. It's becoming a real problem. Then the guy who's supposed to run the trivia is also stuck in this accident or traffic jam or something. He can't get there. So they're just milling around. It's like a cooking. It's Mm. like a pressure cooker. Oh, yeah. Especially in a rich town like that where everyone has secrets and talks about each other. Mm -hmm. So they kind of hinted at that when the principal is on the mic and he's talking about the mixologist made a new drink and everyone should try it out. So I guess that's what uh, their little wink-wink to it was. Yeah, yeah. So we sort of know from the very beginning, this is where it's going to end. There's going to be a big mystery. We have to unfold. Who was it that died that night? We see from episode one interspersed throughout the season, these police interviews of a detective questioning not just the main five, but everyone in the town. It's been referred to as the Greek chorus, people piping up and giving you the tone of what it's like here in Monterey. That tone gets dark quick. The things people say about other people, either I'm not aware of it and people say things like that in my group, or this town is really screwed up. Well, I love that we made these same analogies in Sharp Objects. We referred to the town itself as an actual character, and the town is being sick. This is part of the root of the issues occurring, that it reinforces all of the problems and amplifies them. It's occurring in a different way here, but the same thing. 
the lies, the gossip, the bullying (laughs) from parent to parent, the judgment that everyone is undergoing. So we'll start out with our first character, that being Renata. We are introduced to her early on. On orientation day at school, we see her as the wealthy and feared mother of Amabella. I would fear her too. Who accuses Ziggy of attempting to choke her on that first day of school. We won't get into all the particulars of how crazy I think that is. The teacher has them lined up. Ugh, it's stupid. And asking her to point to them. She doesn't even know the names of the kids yet is a big part in the book. And when Ziggy denies this, Jane believes him, but Renata is furious and goes on a warpath to have both ostracized by the town. This is the start of a lot of problems. Other parents are gossiping. They tell their children not to play with Ziggy at school. One even starts a petition to have him suspended. I felt so bad for Jane and Ziggy. Yeah, Jane spends the rest of season one vacillating. She firmly wants to, and in most cases does, believe that Ziggy's telling the truth. She thinks she knows her child. If he said this, it has to be true. Everyone tells her what a sweet boy he is. But she has that doubt in her mind. There's that one little seed that she can't quite get rid of, that he was the product of a violent act. And does that mean this violence is somewhere in his genetic code waiting like a ticking time bomb? And I think made so much worse because she's never told anybody about that. This is this trauma, the secret that she just bears the complete burden of on her own. I also find Renata a very interesting character. We hate her the majority of season one. She's incredibly difficult. She's constantly aggressive. She's making all of these assumptions. And yet, when we get to the point that Jane comes over to her house to confront her one day, Jane realizes she's just a woman trying to protect her child exactly the same way she is. They're not so different, and they're kind of able to put all of that aside and get to what bonds them together. Well, yeah, she wasn't coming to confront. She was coming to apologize because she just jabbed her in the eye. Gouged her eye. (laughs) Well, kind of warranted, though. (laughs) For sure. But I like that her character can flip around on us. And we now relate to Renata. She's brought in as part of the group. We feel bad for her. What would we do if our child was being abused and there was nothing we could do to stop that? But we're also introduced very early on to Madeline McKenzie, another strong-willed and feared woman in town, with a first-grade daughter, Chloe, who, by the way, I love. She's great. Chloe. (laughs) What, What do you want, woman? Oh, calamity. She also has a teenage daughter, Abigail, from an earlier marriage. While Madeline is always there for her friends, her personal life is starting to suffer as she struggles to cope with her ex-husband Nathan's marriage to a yoga instructor named Bonnie and her relationship with her older daughter who decides to move in with Bonnie and Nathan. Things reach a peak when Abigail puts up a website to auction off her virginity in order to raise money for Amnesty International and awareness about sex trafficking. As the season progresses, we also learn Madeline had an affair with a local theater director, Joseph, and is almost discovered when the two get into a car accident together. Even though she never talks to Ed about it, she does confide in Abigail. And there's a lot going on with Madeline. (laughs) I'm not even sure why they felt they had to put this affair in there, which is a TV creation only. That didn't happen in the books. But apparently Reese Witherspoon felt there wasn't enough to sink her teeth into with this character, as is that she was too, quote unquote, flawless. Okay. I don't know. I see a lot of realism in her, even kind of putting that aside, the difficulty that she has in these parenting issues 
we find out that she was essentially a single parent when she raised Abigail. She was pretty young when she had her with Nathan. Nathan took off very early on into this. She didn't have a lot of money. She was really struggling to bring her up. And now, later in life, that Abigail is a teenager, she's doing that typical thing where she doesn't want to hear any of mom's baloney and decides to move in with her cool dad and cooler stepmother, Bonnie. And Madeline takes this as a rejection. She's done so much for her, and now her daughter doesn't even want to be close to her. Not only that, but she is emulating Bonnie and everything Bonnie stands for. Madeline thinks this is part of the problem, how she got this idea in her head to raise money for Amnesty International. So it's a really complex relationship. But adding to that the whole affair thing, I was kind of screaming at the television of this character of Joseph, the theater director. Yeah, he's a child. There's a lot of man-childs in this show. Yeah, Nathan, one of Nathan kind of is too, her ex-husband. In his own regards, these men lack self-confidence. A lot of them do. Mm-hmm. Even though they're rich as shit. But I find her relationship with Ed very interesting. At the heart of it, they do seem to have a good relationship, but it's fizzled and perhaps she is partially to blame for not nurturing things there. Madeline is a lot and it constantly feels like it's about her. And you can see where that could leave the people that she's close to feeling like they're not getting enough. Like Ed expresses that later, that he's just not getting enough out of this with her. And there's problems, but they're really great at pretending that nothing's wrong and that just keeps making it worse. They're not addressing anything that's going on. Well, then we have Celeste, a retired lawyer and the mother of twin sons who appears to have a happy life with her husband, Perry. She can't admit to herself or others the man who seems to the outside world an attentive and loving father is actually physically and emotionally abusive. When she legally represents Madeline and Joseph in a meeting with the mayor to convince them to run the controversial play Avenue Q, she realizes she wants to return to work, but Perry becomes violent at the idea. As things start to deteriorate in their relationship, she seeks the help of a therapist who attempts to convince her to leave Perry. When Celeste finally realizes her children have witnessed the violence in her home, and in fact, Max has been the child bullying Amabella, she makes the decision to leave Perry. But he catches onto her plans and confronts her at trivia night. You can see as he loses control of his wife, of himself, things just fall apart quick. To the point where he starts beating her in front of everybody. Mm-hmm. Something he's not done before this. Yeah. Managed to maintain this ever-important facade that they put on. Yeah. The therapist brings that up a couple of times. You have to go to this trivia night? What is this nonsense? And she's saying that's what's so important that other people don't know mm. what's happened. And in fact, Celeste is very interesting. The domestic violence as represented here is so accurate. It's very rarely clean cut and easily defined. She feels partially responsible that they have this sick way of relating to each other. She says, I feel like I feed into it. I also hit him too. There's a part of this that I engage in. We have this unhealthy sexual relationship that often follows after the abuse. Then there's this power dynamic. You know, I get the power back for a little while yeah. before it shifts hands. She doesn't realize that she's not to blame for a lot of it. It takes a deal of uncovering in therapy to get her to actually confront that. And of course, those effects continue on into season two 
it's not that now that he's gone, I can start over with a new life. You don't just erase that. Absolutely. That's one of her biggest struggles at this point. Her therapist even says, even in his death, his message lives on. And the message was, it's your fault. Yeah. Well, and finally, we have Jane Chapman, new to town, a single mother raising her son, Ziggy, whose motives at first are unknown. After becoming friends with Madeline and Celeste, she reveals that Ziggy was the result of a rape that happened several years prior. Her attacker told her his name was Saxon Banks, but after Madeline finds a man with that name and Jane confronts him, she realizes it wasn't him and her attacker must have just been using an alias. Her story was the biggest, or I think had the most weight. I mean, arguably with Celeste as well, but there was so much that she was going through internally on the TV show and also once you explained to me on the book, even more so in the book. But she's the one we see running, running on the beach, running away from, then running figuratively to her attacker and shooting him in her mind. This was a big through line that I think is going to still be there, but now with Bonnie. Mm -hmm. Because in season two, now we see Bonnie is the one who's running vigorously, running to or from some kind of thought or feeling, sprinting almost, two-hour run. And parallel to that, we see Jane going for a run in season two, and she's dancing She's listening to music and dancing on the beach. You see the dichotomy between those two. She's finally free. And all of this is because who has been able to resolve their trauma versus who hasn't. And I don't just mean Perry dying. It's not like that fixes anything. But she was actually able to finally confront the issue she was dealing with. She told her friends the truth about the rape, what had happened to her. She got to the bottom of what was going on with Ziggy and was able Mm -hmm. to reinforce in her own mind, I am a good parent. Ziggy is a good child. I have a support system here in this town. These other people haven't had the chance to do that. Bonnie hasn't even been able to tell anyone about what happened that night. And that kind of thing will just tear you apart. And it wasn't even her idea to hide it. Mm -hmm. She said straight up, if we told the truth, I wouldn't be in that much trouble. Questionably, yeah, I want to get to that eventually, whether we believe that or not. But I think either way... That's how she wanted to handle it. And so she's now starting to blame Madeline for kind of coercing her, even though maybe that's not entirely how it went down. That's how it's feeling to her now. Well, we didn't see how they discussed what to say. Mm -hmm. But out of Bonnie's mouth, it sounds like Madeline was the first one to say, this is what we're going to say to people. Yeah. And she says, you know, the others are going to follow suit if you said that. Yeah, They followed your lead on it. Back to Jane, though, while she wouldn't talk to her son about his father in season one, Ziggy began questioning this as part of these secrets she was keeping all bundled up. And at the teacher's suggestion, Jane took Ziggy to be evaluated by a psychologist who told her she believed he was a sweet boy incapable of such violence and perhaps he was actually being bullied himself. But Amabella's bullying continues and when things get worse for Jane, she lashes out at Renata. Now, this is what got me, and and I'm trying desperately not to get too deep into season one, because we do have an agenda here, which is season two. (laughs) But as a therapist herself, everything this psychologist says to Jane after one sitting, you can't come up with that in one freaking (laughs) session. That's months of talking. Agreed. And you really don't want to give such strong initial impressions to a parent. I mean, I do think essentially you can get the idea of whether a child is capable of extreme violence or not. It's a little weird, though. I think that we just needed somebody to reinforce. Jane kind of knew this in her heart all along, but she was being questioned by so many other people. The whole town. Mm -hmm. 
And finally, Ziggy winds up confessing to Jane he knows who's been hurting Amabella, but she made him promise not to say anything or she would be killed. He does reveal it was Celeste's son, and Jane confronts Celeste with the news. As we mentioned, all of these threads start to come together at the school trivia night. The characters are culminating in one area. Madeline runs out after seeing Ed perform on stage. Jane goes to confront her. Renata follows. Finally, Perry comes in looking for Celeste. When Jane sees him, she realizes that this is the man who attacked her. She exchanges knowing glances with the other women. They all seem to understand. And Perry then attacks Celeste. The women fight him back, trying to protect her. And Bonnie rushes over to help, pushing Perry and resulting in him falling down the stairs to his death. And it's not just the fall. It looks like he fell onto some metal bars through his neck and through his... uh... Yeah, it was a little weird. I don't know why they decided to change the layout of where this happened. In the books, it was on a balcony outside. Okay. And they were all having drinks and character after character started coming out. There was a bit of a tussle going on inside over something else and, and started to kind of push the group back. Then Perry comes in. He's standing at the edge of the balcony, which they determine later is too low for safety requirements. Perry is a very tall man. Mm-hmm. Everybody was very, very drunk, so not really reacting in their normal response time. And it's raining and slippery. So when Bonnie goes and pushes him, a shove that probably shouldn't have done anything to him, all of these elements combined together, he falls back over the balcony to a two-story fall. And that adds up in my mind. I don't know why you would choose to just make it on the stairs where it actually makes Bonnie seem a little more culpable. Hmm. And I don't know if they wanted that. I wonder. To increase her sense of guilt. And these stairs are being worked on. That's why those metal bars are there. Mm Because if you remember, there's tape there, caution tape. Still, at the same time, that's a big man. A woman coming to rescue her friends and pushing someone, that can't be murder. It shouldn't be. Who knows what the police will do with that? In the books, they're able to say, well, clearly it isn't her fault because of X, Y, Z, all these factors. The rain, the drinks, the height of the balcony, the height of Perry... You don't really have all of those factors in the TV show. So I wonder if there's a way that they can twist that, that it's more of Bonnie's fault than maybe it would have been. But in both book and TV show, this does culminate with them all speaking to the police, saying that this was an accident. They all follow the same storyline. And the final scene shows that the police might not be sold on this. Detective Quinlan is keeping a close eye on the group. She looks out on them as the women are with their children at the beach. That's season one and takes us into season two, which we found out will also be a seven-episode season. It's going to be written by David E. Kelly, who is a season one creator, writer, and executive producer, but will be directed by Andrea Arnold this time instead of Jean-Marc Vallée. He will remain on as an executive producer. And I found out I didn't know this. The material they're taking for this season is based on what's going to be a new novella by Moriarty. She wrote enough extra material to go on for a season two. Oh, great. They speak about how the darkly comedic drama, it's kind of interesting that they term it a comedic drama. It does have its funny moments, but I don't know. Uh, We'll continue to explore the malignancy of lies, the durability of friendships, the fragility of marriage, and of course, the vicious ferocity of sound parenting. Multiple characters will be dealing with Perry's death and the prospect of moving past a life-altering event. 
A lot of this precipitated by our new character, Mary Louise Wright, played by Meryl Streep, (laughs) who arrives in Monterey searching for answers after Perry's death. Our season premiere, What Have They Done?, is being received very well. Right now, IMDb is giving an 8.9 and Rotten Tomatoes a 95%. The critics say, gorgeous and gripping, the second season doubles down on the dark humor and gives its impressive cast even more juicy drama to chew on. It's harder now to ignore. Big Little Lies is offering up some of the best psychological storytelling on television. The characters' inner emotional lives still drive the story. They say the show appears to be exchanging an all-consuming incendiary mystery for a tale that's less mercurial but no less hearty, an absolute pleasure to watch. I wondered how interested people would be in it given the fact that we don't have that all-encompassing mystery that we had in season one. How important was that to you? Figuring out who had been murdered, who did it. It was important, but I was really enjoying the characters more. The storytelling and the music, to be honest with you, the score was amazing. I think we have a new intrigue and a new mystery, and that's Mary Louise, you know? Um, We have so much intrigue with the dichotomy of our new characters. Even the husbands, we have Renata's husband is um, losing it, and we don't know why. Because mm-hmm. he wasn't really integral in the main storyline of season one. So I'm, I'm very intrigued about that. And I have so many questions about Mary that I'll ask you later. So I think if people love the writing of season one, they're going to love the writing of season two. I also think it was relatively easy to figure out early on that it was going to be Perry that this happened to. You didn't know till the last minute that it was going to be Bonnie who pushed him, but that's more of an impetus for season two mm. than an answer to the mystery of season one. You know, but I had no idea that Perry would be the one that molested Jane. Yes. Also a a huge twist of a reveal. But again, more important, I think, to season two, we see now how Celeste is dealing with that. Mm -hmm. I like that despite everything they've gone through. Celeste and Jane could very easily be at each other's throats, hating each other. Celeste finds out that it's actually her son that's been abusing a girl at school, not Jane's son. She finds out that Perry was Jane's attacker and now that he had a child with her. None of this is Jane's fault, but you could see where it would be a very human reaction to be resentful of that. Absolutely. One reaction, like you're saying, would be to place blame on someone else. But we're seeing right away that Celeste is placing all the blame on herself. That's also unfortunate, yes. Very unfortunate, and I think it will destroy her throughout this season, but one of the main reasons why they're not fighting. Yes, very true. We do open up the episode seeing how all the women are still grappling with this because it goes to each one of the characters and them all having flashbacks. Bonnie is thinking about the day with the children on the beach as she goes for a run. Renata is remembering the events of the trivia night. Madeline is reflecting on her affair with Joseph. Jane is flashing on the infamous traumatic night with Perry. And Celeste is thinking about her interview with the police. That spirals out into memories that bring her all the way up to the events leading up to Perry's death. And she's woken up from her nightmare by Mary Louise. Which isn't helping. Perry's mother... Our very first introduction to her, she tells Celeste, she mentioned something about rape in her sleep. Mm. She's calling out. We're going to see that happen again later. So they're all continuing to struggle with this, as well as throughout the episode, there are flashes to someone in the police station, maybe the detective, repeatedly playing the tapes of the women's interviews 
from that night. Yeah, that someone was very adamant in season one that they're lying. Mostly the detective. That would make yeah. me think that it's her again. She's pausing the tapes on certain people's faces as they're talking, yeah. really scrutinizing. She knows that they're lying, but she doesn't know about what or how to prove it. The parents now get their children ready for school. The first day of second grade, Jane looks healthier and happier in her morning with Ziggy. She does. Madeline complains to Ed about all the scrutiny the moms will be under that day. And Celeste twins are fighting in the car when Mary Louise intervenes. She tells them fine young men don't suddenly become fine young men. It starts with being fine young boys. It seems as though she's supporting Celeste in that moment. She's yeah. telling them you got to listen to your mother. And we are getting kind of these mixed messages that she does really care about the boys and she wants to help, but... There's always another side to that. She's very vindictive. And do you think that we're seeing the boys' behaviors kind of escalate? They seem to be fighting a lot, being aggressive a lot, not listening to their mother. Whatever was kind of cooking under the surface for them, with Perry's death, they don't seem to be reacting to that very well. They're Ab acting out. Absolutely. I think those kids should be seeing a therapist. Mm -hmm. It made me wonder because she certainly knows the value. She's in therapy herself, Celeste. Yeah, I mean, there's so much we could go into with this and so much we still don't know. I, I believe right now Celeste is so absorbed in what's going on in her own head that she perhaps isn't being the best mother mm -hmm. to them emotionally. Obviously, she's still providing very well food, you know, care, things like that, but... I don't think anyone's been emotionally checking in on yes. these boys for a long time. Actually, I say food, but Mary made a comment that you can't eat fast food for dinner every night. So maybe she's not being providing a little, very well. Yeah, yeah. a little neglectful because she's so consumed with this. And also Mary Louise makes an point later to say, why don't you just hire a housekeeper? So it sounds like she's doing all of the, maybe the laundry, the cooking, yeah. the dishes. Celeste not able to keep up with that right now. Yeah, and if I were Celeste, I wouldn't want Mary around like Oof. that. I would have a housekeeper and be like, Mary, we don't need you. Thank you so much. It's Let's gonna go be away. bad news. Yeah. And this is another indication. Celeste doesn't know how to set those boundaries mm -hmm. for herself. At the drop-off, we see our five women, the Monterey Five, as we'll find out they're called later, all say hello to each other as the other parents look on suspiciously. Principal Warren gives a bizarre opening speech. <laughs> And then warns Madeline about stirring up trouble this year. We see Renata has not lost all of her old ways, bullying the new teacher while informing him that Amabella was bullied last year. She's literally doing the same thing she's getting upset about. Oh my God, she was so rude to that teacher. I felt bad for him. Oh, this poor guy. The women all confer about how something is off with Bonnie. And privately, they wonder if the town is still talking. They'll later have this discussion where Renata says she heard Detective Quinlan said the case isn't officially closed, but they don't have anything substantial on them. As we mentioned, we only get a quick look at what's going on in Renata's life. She's doing a photo shoot for women in power at her home. Just a great scene, but we get the darker underneath. Her husband, dismissive of this, he's preoccupied with whatever's going on with him. He goes downstairs to this train room and starts drinking. Getting really, really drunk. Yeah. And miserable. So I'm wondering what his issue is. Something's happening there. That'll probably unfold throughout the season. Does he know the truth? I don't know. There is sort of a simmering tension now going on with the husbands and their issues that we didn't see as much of in season one. We're going to get the tension between Nathan and Ed later as well. So speaking of this, let's go to Madeline, who runs into Mary Louise at the coffee shop. Mary Louise says she finds her potentially untrustworthy and hard to get a read on. 
a nice person, a loving, but also a, a wanter. wanter. A, a wanter. Mm. You know, there are people in, in life who content themselves with what they have, and then there are others who just, just want. I'm not a wanter. Oh, you don't have to take it personally. Anyway, I'm a wanter myself. You know what I want? I want Harry back. I want to know what happened that night, and I, I'm very tempted to ask you, but I doubt I would get the, uh, the truth, would I? Later, we see Madeline's new job selling houses, though she isn't present or really invested, constantly talking on the phone. And back at the office, she has another confrontation with Mary Louise, who's looking to rent an apartment in town. So what do you think about their interactions, what's going to happen with these two characters? Well, I don't think it's going to be specifically these two characters. I think Mary Louise is slowly going to start breaking down all of them. Mm-hmm. She'll be planting seeds of a, like a virus, a mental virus in all of them while deconstructing them emotionally, which will lead to an culmination towards the end of the season of a blowout. Do you think she can get to Madeline, though? She seems so strong-willed and immediately puts her in her place, telling her she deserves an apology for what she said earlier. Yeah, but right away she broke her down again. Within her apology, she struck her down again. Yeah, kind of. But Madeline, she holds firm to that boundary. She's Mm -hmm. setting with her, you're not going to get to me. So-and-so can deal with your rental. Yeah, so possibly her way to destroying Madeline would be through Jane, Celeste, Renata, and Bonnie. Or uncovering that affair could certainly... That, yes. become an issue. I mean, I don't think it's coincidence that we interpose this with Ed running into Tori at the supermarket. Oh, yes. And Tori is, of <laughs> course, the wife of Joseph, who Madeline had the affair with. And she knew last season that mm-hmm. something was going on when Madeline came to visit him at the hospital. Oh, yeah. But she knew right away. Mm-hmm. And I thought Ed was really figuring it out as well. Me too. It seemed like he knew when she went to apologize Madeline to him later on. In season one. Yeah, he didn't let her finish. And he was kind of like, we're going to move past this. I know Mm -hmm. something happened, but we don't need to talk about it. I like the fact that they're choosing to have a character like Mary be this person who's going to break them down rather than just a random detective, Mm -hmm. you know? It feels like it means more. Somebody who has her own emotional investment more than anybody about caring about Perry. Notice Coffee Shop was an anchor for a lot of the discussions last season. Is this a completely new coffee shop or is it renovated or this is like a different outside part? It is. And we got rid of that character. I think his name was Tom. Yeah, I think he's gone and being replaced with Corey. That's weird that they did that because it really felt like that was going to go somewhere. And it was a much bigger deal in the books. She eventually, at the end of book one, did develop a relationship with him. It's very curious. I, I wonder. And I believe this will be the new anchor point for their discussion. It is cool It is cool. I like it. It's way better. On the other side of this, Nathan is struggling to understand what's going on with a distant Bonnie who's going on two-hour runs, dealing with her own issues. He even seeks help from Ed, but the conversation deteriorates and Nathan repeatedly calls him a snide fuck. Well, why would he go to Ed to talk to his new wife? <laughs> He's such an idiot, this he really guy. really is. Uh, I mean, even more so in the novels, the way that Madeline describes him, that he was completely useless (laughs) with their child. He abandons her, and now he comes back to town later, kind of impinging upon her social circle and pretending to be the best dad in the world, which infuriates her. Of course. In some respects, it does seem like he's genuinely trying to turn over a new leaf. 
He has this relationship with Bonnie that's a lot healthier, but he still doesn't really know what he's doing as a husband, as a father. It's almost touching in the beginning of the scene that he sees Ed is so effective where he's not. And so he's trying to reach out in the only way that he knows how, but it's kind of ridiculous. And Ed is a little snide with him. Yeah, he is for sure. You know? (laughs) And then Nathan just kind of crumbles into this adolescent boy who needs to keep insulting him because he doesn't know what else to do. But we can't forget the relationship they had. I mean, in that party, they were almost going to fight. It doesn't just go away. There's a lot going on there. I'm kind of impressed that it hasn't gotten worse than that already. And as you said while we were watching it, you believe... Oh, it seems like Nathan still has feelings. Yes. For Madeline. I think so. He wishes he hadn't messed up so bad in the first place and is a little jealous that Ed was able to be the adult and step in and do the things that he couldn't. And especially now that he's having issues with Bonnie and theirs isn't that picture-perfect relationship, it seems like he doesn't know what to do. Yet again, when shit hits the fan, Nathan doesn't know what to do. It's also kind of depressing for Bonnie's sake that people keep acting, the people who know, like they don't understand. Madeline's like, I don't understand what's wrong with her. How do you not understand the stuff that she's dealing with? And she obviously can't tell Nathan, so it's a big mystery to him. There's also issues, again, with Abigail. We see that during a meeting with the school counselor, Abigail tells both of her parents she's decided she doesn't want to go to college. Madeline yells at Nathan for his lack of parenting, thinks part of this is not doing his part during the previous summer they spent in Tahoe. And later that night, she goes to speak with her daughter, who insists she won't be going to college. She's been offered a position at a startup company building houses for the homeless. Madeline yells at her that her life will go nowhere without college, much as her own did. Yet again, this kind of is about Madeline. Obviously, I'm not saying anything super smart by saying that was poor parenting (laughs) in that moment. (laughs) But she was very emotional. She feels like everything that she worked her life for, she gave up having a profession to raise Abigail. Abigail. Yeah. And now by herself. And now she failed because she's not going to college. I think her better approach would have been to try to discuss with her how going to college first will allow her, will give her the tools to be that type of person who can make changes in the world. Well, it's yet again the issue we were running into season one that Madeline thinks she sees Bonnie's influences in Abigail's decisions. All the things she tried to instill in Abigail, she thinks are being undone now because Mm -hmm. Abigail respects Bonnie and Bonnie's viewpoints on the world and has decided she wants to go it a different way. So instead of responding in a mature parenting type style, Madeline gets emotional and freaks out. This is tough because I can see why she responds this way. Of course. These are not easy issues, and Abigail is a typical teenager that she's not making any of this easier on her mother. Now, of course, there's not going to be any one right path for a child to follow, and maybe she should have tried to have a conversation about why Abigail wants to do these things, what is it that she sees in her future, how can they help. But I think she felt like she tried to do that with the Amnesty International issue last season, the website issue. Yeah. And it didn't work. Well, it did. Not her original approach. True. It wasn't until she made herself vulnerable, opened up to her daughter. She said, I'm not telling you all of these things because I think I'm right about everything and I know the right path in life. I'm flawless. Look at me. I've made these mistakes. That's when she admitted to the affair. I'm trying to prevent you from the pain and the problems that I've encountered in life. And it seems like Abigail kind of got that. And that's when she changed her mind about something. 
that her mother was treating her like an adult instead of just ordering her around like a child. So who knows how this will go. I have a feeling it's going to be an ongoing problem for them. This podcast is brought to you by Twillery. Shirts shouldn't wrinkle, itch, or sweat. It's 2019. Twillery makes stocking up your closet easy, affordable, and the perfect fit guaranteed. Twillery is built on a century-old family manufacturing business. Their team's technical know-how keeps costs down while maintaining high standards in quality and craftsmanship. They bring performance work shirts to the next level for as low as $55 each when you bundle four or more. The Shop in Bundles model gives you access to shirts that competitors are selling for $100 or more. Plus, with free shipping and returns, you can try on risk-free. Twillery offers an amazing collection including performance shirts, safe cotton, the Friday shirt, and the untuckable. They've engineered the world's most innovative non-iron fabric, a proprietary material called safe cotton. It has an incredible hand feel, no annoying scratchy tags, and no need to iron or dry clean ever again. And their hyper-breathable four-way stretch fabric features Coolmax moisture-wicking technology to keep you dry. I just got my Twillery package. What did you think? The shirts look amazing on you, and they look comfortable too. I feel comfortable, but I also feel classy. They're super soft, and I got the untuckables, so they look really good tucked in and untucked. Not that you are sending them back, but if you needed to, they come with these pre-printed return labels right in the box to make it very easy for you. The packaging was amazing. It was so professional. It felt like I was a VIP customer. But that's not all. They have socks, ties, and collar stays. In fact, they are running a limited-time Father's Day special. Enjoy a free set of bottle opener collar stays, valid through June 16th. We got some of those, too. Those are super cool. They combine the fine detail of tailored dress shirts with the comfort of your favorite polo. Smart casual just got smarter. And for our listeners, you can get $25 off by visiting twillery.com forward slash CKC and using the promo code CKC. That's twillery, T-W-I-L-L-O-R-Y, dot com forward slash ckc don't forget the promo code ckc for 25 dollars off you can support us by supporting our sponsors that night madeline also attempts to talk to bonnie asking her if she's okay and why she's been avoiding the rest of the group bonnie reminds her she killed someone and that's heavy mm-hmm. i mean are you angry at me for some reason i'm angry with myself if i had just told the truth I would have gotten off, but you said he slipped, and everyone else joined in the fucking chorus. That was to protect you. Yeah, thanks a lot. You know, I can't talk to my husband or my kid. I have to just swallow it all. You can talk to us. We're here for you, all of us. Well, it hasn't really felt like that. But now she can't talk to anyone about it. She feels very alone. In fact, later that night, she walks by the police station deliberating, turning herself in. Man, she's going through a lot, and she feels alone. And she is alone, but part of it is her own doing. She has that group, I was going to say friends. They're not really friends, but... They kind of are. She can confide in them. She's avoiding them. She's dealing with a tremendous amount of guilt right now. It's so unfortunate. It really was an accident. When Mm -hmm. Bonnie pushed him, she wasn't trying to kill him. I think the problem is there, all of the women did experience a certain sense of relief with Perry out of the picture, in addition to the guilt of, why are we feeling this relief? Somebody did Mm -hmm. die. This is not a good thing. But this cycle of violence that was perpetuated is now, at least in those respects, finished with. It's a very complicated issue they're trying to wrap their brains around. And in Bonnie's mind, nobody else took that step that she did. Nobody else actually 
pushed him off those stairs. Mm-hmm. She needs the weight of confession off of her chest. But at this point, they can get in a lot more trouble. For lying. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh, it's lose-lose. And as I said, there aren't all those other mediating factors as to proving that what Bonnie did had no malicious intent. So who knows how the police would take that if they would say that unintentional manslaughter. I think so. Something like that where she would still get charged. Yeah. You know. I'm wondering, and it's way too early to say anything, but I'm wondering if this is going to result in another death. Hmm. Maybe self-inflicted. Oh, I could certainly see where some of these psychological issues could spiral. Bonnie is really in a dark place right now that I still don't think we've understood the depth of what's happening with her psychologically and what happened in the lead up to her pushing Perry because without any spoilers, there was more backstory on that in the books and I think we'll get that this season. Let's switch over and talk about Jane, who we mentioned seems to have progressed greatly in her own journey of self-discovery. She's now working at Monterey Bay Aquarium, which is passing strange because in the book she did have a different job. And I thought she also did on TV in season one. Maybe just... I don't remember. Needed a change of life or something. She's telling the kids about the creatures when a man jumps in to help with one of their questions. We're going to find out later that that's Corey. Because she is discovered dancing on the beach to music when he comes upon her on his way to surfing. He gives her kind of a weird comment saying that she should be careful how she acts in public. After all, she must know how the people in this town talk. He's heard she's one of the Monterey Five. You're one of the Monterey Five, right? That being the five women that were there the night of the death. I don't know if this is a result of how young he is, but... Just, you don't speak to other people like that, especially... so so bizarre. Like, to the point that she turns the joke back around on him? Is there something wrong with you? Yeah. You know? (laughs) I don't foresee... You know, earlier this episode, we said maybe Corey is taking place. But I I don't think so. I know that they are putting him forth as sort of the new person, but it seems like she doesn't really like him. And there's tension happening there. Especially right now. And again... It's way too early. Yeah. More importantly, that night Jane has dinner with Celeste. Celeste wonders why Jane isn't cashing the checks she's sending her, part of Perry's estate money for Ziggy. This is the conversation we talked about where Jane is concerned if Celeste harbors any hate for her, but she insists that she doesn't. This shows a lot. I think we already touched upon this, but Celeste is, again, it's showing that it's all about her in regards to where she's laying the blame which I think is it's just, unfortunately, a lot of victims do place the blame on themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you mentioned, she says that to her therapist, if only he hadn't been there that night. It was my decision to leave him at that time that wound him up at the party and all these things that were completely out of her control. Of course. I think that Jane and Celeste had a special relationship in season one, and I'm happy they continued that here. They can relate to each other in a different way. And Jane is willing to ask some of these more important probing questions. It seems Mm. like nobody else in Celeste's life is willing to do. She asks if Celeste is glad that Perry's dead, to which she honestly responds, her reactions are complicated. And indeed, we're going to see Celeste going through all of that. We find out she hasn't been to see the therapist for a while, but she goes for a meeting and discusses her recent nightmares, which she thinks may have been triggered by the start of school and her associations with that. She describes a dream where she becomes the monster, lashing out at Perry while the two were at the in vitro facility. 
So the roles are reversed in this dream she has, and she does tie that together with feeling partial responsibility for his death. Another important fact, though, she hasn't shared any of this with her therapist, the covering up the secrets that went on that night. As a therapist, would you have to inform the authorities? Legally, I don't really know the answer to that because the situation already took place. Mm -hmm. There is no imminent threat anymore to anyone. And Celeste didn't actually do anything. So I don't know where that line falls, but it's just another clear example of Celeste was hiding things in the relationship with the therapist in the beginning. She's still kind of hiding things from her. But don't a lot of people who need therapy do that? Of course. They hide things from themselves. They hide things from their therapists. Of course. I hide things from my doctor because I'm an idiot. <laughs> it makes it so hard for her to help Celeste, though, is the problem here. That she doesn't have the full story about why she's feeling these things. Yeah. And yet again, Celeste is kind of left on her own with all of these secrets and emotions. She doesn't tell the therapist how she's been thinking about the good times together, maybe even idealizing some mm. of those memories in her mind about do. times with Perry. Well, there were good times with Perry. We saw that. The show did a tremendous job in the little amount of time they had to show us that, wow, he could be a really good guy. He's an amazing father. He's playful with them. He's patient. He's able to get them in check without being angry. And I mean, I know parents now where they can't get their kids in check. And I'm not saying they're abusive. They're just like, kids, I told you to stop, you know, and you can't. <laughs> That's part of the reason that she allowed herself to delude herself into thinking that the kids weren't aware of the violence because Perry's such a good father. That was her line over and over again. Yeah. And the fact is, regardless of all of the terrible things that he did and his own mental health issues, she is now missing that partner in parenting, the father to her children. What does she tell them now? And I don't think she knows what to do with any of that. We see back at the house, Mary Louise encouraging the kids to express their grief, but it quickly becomes about her own anger and how unfair it is that her amazing son is dead. That scene was really well done. We saw once again that the kids are fighting each other. We see that they're not dealing with this well. One of them goes to stab the other one yeah, with, with a, a fork. fork. And we see these two sides of Mary yet again, where it seems like she's what she's saying is very meaningful, very kind. But that black shadow starts to emerge and that scream was, wow. She terrified those kids. And the stuff she was saying about Perry... How these other very average people really putting them down get to have their sons and yet her incredible son is gone. How unfair yeah. all of that is. It's terrifying. Do you believe that Mary actually has no clue what her son was like? Do you really believe that? Yes. See, I find that hard to believe for a few ways. And this is dangerous territory. And I'm only skimming it. I know there's way more to this. But we've learned that when someone's abusive, in many cases, they've been abused. Mm-hmm. In my head, I'm thinking maybe his father was abusive, which would mean that his mother was aware or maybe it was an uncle. I don't know. But also as a kid, you start to show those patterns mm -hmm. and the mother would be aware of it. Maybe she's in supreme denial um, or maybe she is the abuser. I think she's the problem. Okay. And that's why I say that. Or, you know, maybe she is aware, but like you said, she's in such denial because she is the problem. I don't think there's any overt evidence here, and I'm not even necessarily suggesting she abused him. I think there's evidence here that she raised him to believe he was special mm. and different and deserved anything and everything 
and by any means necessary. Okay. I think that we need to see more, but the couple of lines she gave us here were a bit scary of how she viewed her son and maybe the beliefs she instilled in him. So if that's the case, I envision a time where the women do confront Mary and tell her what kind of man he was, mm-hmm. and she will not... Believe it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I do think that's going to happen because she's probing now about these dreams, these nightmares. I think Celeste is going to come to a snapping point or somebody else will, Jane, mm-hmm. when she sees that and, and say, do you have any idea what he was actually like? It's not a secret. Everybody does know that he hit her that trivia night yeah. before he fell. He was kicking her too on the ground. So it's not as though... It remains completely among them. That's a thing that could get to her or maybe already has. Well, for sure. Mary Louise. They're saying that they were fighting. It's in the police report that he was fighting her and they were trying to get him off. And in him trying to kick, he slipped and fell. fell. Correct. They went almost all the way except to, to say that Bonnie pushed him. Right. Now, Mary is indeed probing because she says to Celeste, don't you have that anger? And Celeste kind of says, no. Mm-hmm. And she's like, you don't. Right away, her brain as a computer is downloading that in the file bank that she's not feeling the remorse for her son. And then picks up so quickly on that last nightmare Celeste has. And she goes in to comfort her, but then wonders, who are we going to kill? Oh, yeah. You know? Man. Why is Celeste letting Mary in so close? And Vox described this performance by Meryl Streep perfectly, saying, She is obviously brilliantly methodical as the kind of nightmarish mother-in-law who meddles in everyone's lives without a trace. What she does is so much worse than dramatic scheming. She watches, listens, and waits for her prey to become so unnerved by her that they reveal too much. And that's certainly the pattern happening with Celeste here. Absolutely. Mary is going to be the character everyone remembers this season, for mm-hmm. sure. I mean, you got Meryl Streep. She's going to win awards. We're going to see her unravel everything throughout these episodes. I've also heard people talk about, though, there was a danger in bringing in an actor like her. If this was a different cast, she would overshadow everyone else. And yet she doesn't. She fits perfectly into the story because you have such acting standouts, Nicole Kidman, Reese Witherspoon, Shailene Woodley. It's part of the story. It's not the entire story. Well, Jason, that's going to take us to our rating for the episode. On a scale of one to 10 lies, what do you give episode one, what have they done? As an opening episode, displaying to us the time that has gone by and giving us the foundation of where our characters are, while also introducing to us new characters I truly enjoyed this episode. It went by so fast and I can just foresee so many things happening. I'm going 8.9 lies. I completely agree with you. I didn't know how I was going to feel about the direction of a season two. Another quote put it so well saying, if the show isn't the singular masterpiece of the first season, that's because that season was truly meant to be singular. But coming close to meeting a bar set that high is still very worthy. And I think it's only going to continue to unfold more They did a great job of checking back in with our characters, laying the drama. I'm going to give the season premiere a nine lies. And as we move to the digital water cooler, via Twitter, we asked our Clatchers, who is your most valuable character? And what are your thoughts on this episode? If you want to join in on the conversation, follow us at CKC Podcast. This week, we gave you four characters, Mary Louise, Celeste, Bonnie, and Madeline. Coming in at fourth place with 8% is Bonnie. Right now, Bonnie's very subdued. She's in her own head. We're learning what's going on. Obviously, she hasn't pushed anything forward right now. She's still dealing with this. 
so I think the 8%, the fourth place in this particular episode is warranted. What's interesting though, is she does plant the greatest seed of she's probably going to be the one to move the storyline yes. forward the most in the future. But yes, I can see that we're only just teasing that in the season premiere. One could argue she will push the narrative forward. Push it right down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Coming in third place with 16% is Madeline, a big, loud character that always does move things forward in a great way. But she's sort of less central to the events than she was last season. Yes, at this point for sure. That's going to be an interesting look for her. She's more involved in her own personal life than necessarily trying to unravel what's happening with Jane, trying to help her friends. I don't foresee that being the case for the whole season, though, because if you remember, she always said this about herself. She always interjects herself into everyone's life, mm -hmm. and she hates herself for it sometimes. So for sure... She'll be the one that just kind of makes herself part of it. Even the principal says, you're going to stir up trouble this year? <laughs> Coming in a second place with 26% is Celeste. Yet again, right now, we just sort of see her reacting to the situation, trying to deal with her own grief and trauma, trying to pick up the pieces. So it's not as much yet pushing the story forward. Although, as you said, I think Mary Louise is going to wind up getting into the heads of every one of these characters and her included. Speaking of coming in first place, ooh, now it's down to 49% is Mary Louise. Yeah, we should say there's nine hours left in this poll, so it may change. She was at a full 50 just a little while ago. Still sweeping that poll. And for obvious reasons, we've discussed Meryl Streep's performance and the brilliance of this character not being a stereotype, which I think it could be easy to play it like that. I mean, she's going to buy a house. She's not leaving anytime soon. And it's complex. It's not one note what's happening. I don't understand really Mary Louise at all yet. No, and we're not supposed to. She scares me. Except that I'm afraid of her, yeah. yeah she would break me <laughs> apart. So for all those reasons, she is also my MVC for the episode. Same here. I mean, it's pretty easy. MVCs are often difficult on the first episodes of any season of any show that we do because it's, it's a setup. Uh, yeah, and they have to give so much equal time to all the characters. But here, man, stand out. So let's find out what our Clatchers had to say. Amanda says, I voted for Celeste. She's definitely riding on an emotional roller coaster from dealing with her trauma from her husband, trying to keep it together for the boys, and with her crazy mother-in-law. Plus, she has the added guilt knowing her husband raped Jane. Also, I hope someone clues Mary Louise in real soon that her perfect son, quote-unquote, was a wife-beater and a rapist. Quit the dramatics, lady. Yeah. Oh. I mean, like we said, I think that she is going to be told, and she's still going to be in denial about it. Denial is very strong. That would be my prediction. Melly says had to give it to Bonnie. I liked how even though she seems weak and depressed, she's much stronger deep inside and values her truth. Her truth might very well reopen the investigation next week. Mary Louise is interesting as she's the antidote of the other main female characters. She's so honest, you always know exactly what she's thinking. There is only one big truth with her, whether it's well put, such as the realtor scene, or downright awful, such as the dinner scene. I agree with all that, but I don't know... If it's going to wind up being so simple, yes, it is the one big factor that she's here to uncover what's happened to Perry, but I think it's going to be complex. Her relationship with him, how she raised him, it's not going to be as simple as perhaps it seems right now with her. 
Kirk says probably Bonnie for this specific episode, but I'm going with Mary Louise as the longer term MVC. There's a lot to unfold with that lady, her relationship to her son, her relationship to her grandkids, and how cunningly she's planting seeds to bring all the ladies down. Also, he says soundtrack is killer again. Absolutely. So it seems like the Clatchers are on board with the way we're thinking. And just to reiterate, next week we will have this poll up. We ask that you give your thoughts and comments as well, and we'll go over it the following week. Yeah, because two weeks is a long time. If you have other thoughts, predictions about what's coming, fun facts, things we didn't discuss or that you noticed, you can also feel free to write in in an email to us at contact at coffeeclatchcrew.com. Or you can call into our voicemail, ckc.6606. That's 252-368-6606, and you can hear your thoughts on the next podcast. Don't be afraid. People have done this before. If you mess up, you could just let us know or hang up and call back again. Either way, we'd love to hear what you're thinking about this show. We only have two small segments left. Our first is a closer look, this time about Leanne Moriarty, the author that did the novel these stories are based on. There's a lot of fun stuff. I'm sure we're going to be talking about her more as the season moves on. But I found out something new that her main inspiration for the story came from a radio interview she heard in which a woman recounted her parents' abusive relationship. The woman narrated how, even as an adult, she hid under her bed to escape her parents' fighting, an experience Moriarty ended up using as a scene in the book. Initially, the novel was a first-person narrative from each of the three main characters, but Moriarty soon decided against that, instead interjecting minor character statements between portions of the story. And she talks about how, of course, she had several inspirations. One of them, she heard parents talking about their kids first day at kindergarten or first grade and that there was a little girl who had bite marks on her arm and it was a whole to do much like we see in the show eventually the truth came out the little girl admitted she had bit herself but how much drama came out of that and how she was picturing in her mind what if instead of admitting that she had accused another person i think it's really interesting to see where these ideas culminate how authors think about things like that. And there were, of course, some differences that we'll continue to talk about from book to TV. But that just leaves us with our sneak peek for the next episode. If you are afraid of spoilers, we'll caution you that it's just an overview from what we get on the HBO preview. And if so, we will see you next time in two weeks when we will be reviewing episodes two and three. For those of you still here, we found out episode two is called Telltale Hearts. The synopsis says Renata faces an uncertain future when Gordon lands in legal trouble. Corey asks Jane out on a practice date. Celeste opens up to Mary Louise about her relationship with Perry, and Ed confronts Madeline on her secrets. So things already will start ramping up. Oh, calamity. (laughs) That's a lot. Uh, that explains what's going on with Gordon. He's having legal trouble. Yes, it does. We don't know what about, but man, wouldn't it be an interesting twist if this winds them up in financial difficulty? Because so much of Renata's persona... Is about power and wealth. Correct. Now, she's also a high-powered business executive. I'm sure she makes a great deal of money all on her own, but I think it'd be nice to add a little more body to Renata's character that's been a little bit on the back burner. Turns out, I guess Corey is going to ask Jane out. I don't know how she's going to respond to that. What in the hell is a practice date? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) What? Maybe he wants to take someone else out on a date and he asks her. Oh, no. For practice. Uh, Or like they're both 
scared for some reason to date. So this is a trial run. I wonder. It's not a real date. To see how it goes type of thing. Okay. Celeste opens up to Mary Louise. What is she going to tell her about Perry? Surely it can't be this early that she admits there was violence. But what is there to say if she's not going to tell her that? Hmm. Intriguing. And Ed confronts Madeline. This has got to be about the affair. Of course. And I'm nervous. On her secrets and lies. I, I, I want Madeline and Ed to find a way to make this relationship work. We have only gotten the episode titles for the first three. Episodes four through seven are a mystery, but we do know that after that, episode three will be called The End of the World. So I think this is going to heat up a lot quicker than we expected. And we're going to actually start to have stuff happen in episodes two and three. Yeah, it's going to be hard not to podcast about it. We're going to be like, oh my God, maybe we made a mistake. Right? After two? (laughs) Well, that pretty much wraps this week up. We hope you Clatchers enjoyed it. Tell your friends about us if they're watching the show and they want more. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes, our main channel. And we may release a Big Little Lies channel as well. And this episode is also being released on our Game of Thrones channel, just this one. So if you're listening from there and you dig it, please find our main channel. Just search Coffee Clatch Crew and you'll see it there. Till next time, this round's on me. This round is on me. Try again.